Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast. A meta podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 133, Surreal Spike, or Surreal Spiegel. Yes, we're talking about one Spike Jones, also known as Adam Spiegel to some, probably just family members. Mostly his um, parents. <laughs> probably his parents. Um, well, most definitely his parents, because uh, that's who he was born as in 1969 in New York. Um, and in fact, his great great grandfather was the man who, the Spiegel, who uh, founded Spiegel Catalog, um, which was a very famous catalog from the year like 1865. And it actually just went defunct in like 2019. Uh, wow. So just a couple of years ago. Uh, but he, his parents divorced and he uh, grew up with his mother, brother and sister in Maryland. Uh, I believe Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, he hung out at the local community store there where the owner called him Spike Jones after the satirical band leader from the 30s and 40s, uh, Spike, uh, who was head of Spike Jones and the City Slickers. Uh, he would get into BMX as a teenager and even worked at the local BMX store where he uh, spent a lot of time with uh, B- big BMX names that passed through the um, through the store and through the area. He eventually started taking f- uh, photos of different BMX people, both his friends and some of the big names who passed through town. And that was when he was offered a job with Freestyle and Magazine for his photography. After uh, graduating high school, he moved to California to pursue photography. Um, and there he also fronted a BMX trio called Club Homeboy and started youth culture magazines Homeboy and Dirt. Those uh, are two different magazines. Yes. I believe <laughs> this is and all... Dirt could totally be like a it could also punk be, magazine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I believe this is all the 80s too. So it, it just tracks for that time. Um, he started shooting photos for skateboarders around this time, including Blind Skateboarders and Trans World Skateboarding Magazine, uh, and was eventually enlisted to shoot ads for somebody he met there for a company called World Industries. Uh, that is where he made his first skateboarding video uh, in 1989, uh, which was called Rubbish Heap. He also made a video called Video Days as a promo for the Blind Skateboards, Um uh, that's still considered influential within the space of skateboarding videos. Uh, that project got him to uh, got him work directing a Sonic Youth music video uh, for the song "100 Percent," and that was actually because of an incidental meeting. One of the members of Blind Skateboarders was at a Sonic Youth show and just so happened to run into one of the members of Sonic Youth and showed him the video, and they really liked it, and they tracked down um, Spike Jones to direct it to direct their new music video. Around this time, too, he also started a skateboarding company called Girl Skateboards. Uh, a very common theme in Spike Jones's um, career is a large number of side projects, so much so that it's hard to really call anything a side project. Uh, but yes, he did start a skateboard company along with some other guys. Um, one of the first big influential, like popular, super popular music videos he made was Buddy Holiday for Weezer. Uh, which I almost guarantee almost everyone's seen, but it's the band playing dressed up as if they were in the show Happy Days from the 1950s, and they he kind of cut it around uh, scenes from Happy Days, the show, to actually make it look like the band was interacting with the people in the show. Um, and it was, one, a really impressive, impressive feat of just, like, video editing, 
um, and remix kind of culture that would have been super popular on the internet and actually still is. Buddy Holiday is a very well-watched video on YouTube. Or is it Buddy Holly? I really like that song, too. I'm disappointed in myself. It's Buddy Holly. Uh, but anyway, that do- dominated MTV. And at that point, essentially, Spike Jones became... That video Jones has 58 became, million views, by the way, just to throw some numbers Yeah, that's out. a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at that point, Spike Jones basically becomes the music video guy, and everyone's tracking him down to do work with uh, music videos for MTV. Um, he did uh, other famous videos like Sabotage for the Beastie Boys, which, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of... It's, it's really inventive it's like a cheesy 80s 90s um cop show intro but it's the band and it's for a, a with fake, like the silliest mustaches and like it's, it's just it's it leads really into silly the nonsense that you would have seen on early youtube like oh, it yeah. has that same vibe um, oh yeah but he, sure. he also did stuff and i bring this one up because it's important for where his career eventually ends up going like uh bjork's it's oh so good um, which was done in the style of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which, if you don't know, is a Jacques Demy movie um, from the mid-20th century um, that uh, is a very famous French musical that, one, is really bright and poppy and technicolory, um, and two, is uh, just everyone, everything is sung. There is no yeah. spoken dialogue in that movie. It's all singing. Um, but anyway, it's like kind of a deep cut, like, film nerd thing at this point and even in 1990 such and such it probably i think 92 was the bjork music video it also would have been by then as well it was definitely not pop culture at that point in time so that's kind of like one of those first hints that like he's not just about pop culture he's also about the deep cut cinema too um but but around this time he also started working doing ads um which is a great way to make a lot of money uh, and he did stuff like Gorilla Tennis for Nike, which is Andre Agassi and um, who uh, John McEnroe is the guy who's really angry and smashes rackets all the time um, and Tennis argues people. with refs. I don't I know. think I think it's John McEnroe, uh, but it, they like run up in the middle of New York and set up a tennis game there and everyone gets in on it. It's, it's a really cool, inventive ad. Um, it feels very it, much like, and we were just talking about this too, he was also, during his time, uh, oh, he's not there yet. <laughs> um, but he is part of the uh, creation team for Jackass, and that ad mm-hmm. felt very much like a Jackass stunt, just like running out in the middle of public and doing shenanigans. It does. It kind of has that like skateboarding culture from like the 80s and 90s built into it. It was like, wouldn't it be so yeah. cool if we did it's this, all man? It's shaky cam and like, yeah. like surveillance footage yeah. almost. Speaking of shaking camp, he also did some really weird one-offs, like a sitcom intro for a sitcom called Double Rush about uh, bike messengers that uh, is really incongruous with the idea of a sitcom. But it's a really interesting intro in and of its own right. It's also kind of BMX. Um, True. But anyway, around this time, he the late 90s, he also started branching into documentary filmmaking with uh, short documentaries like Amarillo by Morning from 1997, which is about... Uh, kids trying to become bull riders in Texas. Uh, he was a cinematographer uh, for the Free Tibet documentary and kind of part of that movie uh, movement based out of San Francisco. And he also was in, uh, made, oh, this one's really weird, made a short documentary called Torrance Rises that came out in 1999. 
And Spike Jones loves Fat Boy Slim. Uh, really <laughs> loves Fat Boy Slim. And in fact, uh, Spike Jones created a fake character who was a dance troupe leader and then performed some flash mobs, basically, uh, two Fat Boy Slim songs and made videos about them until they got so popular that this fake uh, dance troupe and dance troop leader, which at this point had become a real dance troop and dance troop leader. Um, if it walks like a duck and quacks like <laughs> a duck, were invited to perform at the MTV MTV uh, Music Video Awards, um, where he performed in character to a Fat Boy Slim song, um, and he made a, a short documentary about it. And that kind of like messing with identity, like you take on a fake identity until that fake identity becomes you, is very relevant to some of the uh oh, yeah. later work in his in his ouvert or his canon um and this is important to his career but jones was shortly married to sofia coppola from 1999 to 2004 um and during that time the coppola family did what they do best francis ford coppola um at the time his father-in-law passed along a script from charlie kaufman uh for being john malkovich to jones and jones loved it and uh, agreed to direct it um, and thus began his uh, feature film career. Um, he continued to do video work as well, like Fatboy Slim's Weapon of Choice, which if that doesn't ring a bell, it's Christopher Walken dancing and doing like flywire stuff around a hotel um, to all my friends. Travel low rider. Do, 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 do. Um, we could go on and on because uh, he has five bajillion projects and they're all good. Um, he made an ad for Ikea, which won a, a Grand Prix at Cannes. Um, he founded a DVD label for music video directors uh, and made a lot more music videos and still makes them, I believe, to this day. Uh, makes short films, including the one that I was supposed to watch for the bonus podcast, but haven't yet. And <laughs> produced uh, three more features since being John Malkovich, um, which are Jonathan... Yeah, so we're talking about Being John Malkovich from 1999, written by Charlie Kaufman, which is important for the next one, uh, shot by Lance Accord, um, who started at MTV doing shoots for Jones and also Sofia Coppola. Uh, yeah, I believe and he shot uh, some of her uh, big early movies, too. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, and the film stars John Cusack, Cameron Diaz in a very unconventional role, um, Catherine Keener, and John Malkovich. Catherine Keener comes up several times this month, um, this episode, whatever we're calling it nowadays. Uh, next, we're moving on to Adaptation, which is written wrong here. Adaptation with a period from 2002, written by Charlie Kaufman, which is important because it is about Charlie Kaufman writing yeah, it's about Charlie this Kaufman. movie. It is... It so he's actually he's actually credited his fake his fake twin in the movie is credited on the movie posters. OK, I saw that. It's in the credits in the movie, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's this movie is going to be a lot to unpack, but also not that much because the movie says everything. Um, also shot by Lance Accord and starring Nicolas Cage and starring Nicolas Cage and starring Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper. And the third movie is Where the Wild Things Are from 2009, written by Spike Jones and Dave Eggers, uh, also shot by Lance Accord, starring Max Records, Catherine Keener, once again, James Gandolfini, Mark Ruffalo, Lauren Ambrose, Chris Cooper, and Catherine O'Hara. 
Um, and there's also a documentary that comes uh, a few years before this or around the same time where Spike Jones actually followed um, uh, Maurice, oh gosh, what's his name? Maurice Sendek, who's the writer of the children's book, Where the Wild Things Are. And he followed him for several years and gathered interview footage and stuff like that. Um, and so that uh, kind of gives him some insight into that character. So that'll be interesting to talk about when we get to that movie. And we're wrapping up this episode with her from 2013, written by Spike Jones, shot by Hoyt Van Hoytema, uh, and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Amy Adams, Rooney Mara, Olivia Wilde, Scarlett Johansson, and there's a cameo by Kristen Wiig, which was actually <laughs> very interesting to find out in the credits. All right, so let's get into it. And Jason, take us into Being John Malkovich from 1999. Being John Malkovich from 1999. Craig Schwartz is a puppeteer. He's a very good one, but the world is not a place for high art puppeteering, and his relationship with his pet-loving wife, Lot, is strained at best. He finds work as a file clerk in a mysterious building on floor seven and a half. There he tries, and fails, to have an affair with his business associate, but instead of finding love, he finds a magic tunnel behind a file cabinet that lets one live inside famous actor John Malkovich's head for a couple hours before being dumped in the grass by the New Jersey Turnpike. What might seem as a mystical oddity becomes something so much more, allowing Craig to live out his dreams, Lot to explore her identity, and others to start businesses and search for immortality. Turns out people will give up a lot to be John Malkovich. This is this is this is like just the 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 forerunning example of a meta movie. Um, but it's uh, oh gosh, but yeah, by for, and forerunning is right because adaptation may be the most meta movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, this one's still incredible. I mean, it is super character driven, which is something that makes it work really well, right? Because it's yeah. all about. Um, about these characters and how essentially through becoming John Malkovich, they can learn more about themselves. Um, although not all the information uh, they believe about themselves is necessarily uh, helpful. Like for instance, our, our sad sack, Jason, uh, Oh, what's his name? John Cusack. John Cusack. Yeah. Oh man. I hate that character with a passion. Okay, yeah, I mean that that is true, and the, oh gosh, there's so many so many elements to this film. But I mean, I think of more than self discovery. I think of the themes of like power and manipulation in this, which That's it's kind it. of that. It's kind of it's kind of the characters discovering their own desire for power because each one of the characters wants some amount of control over the others right. in no different one, no ways. One comes out- no one comes out good in this. No, they're all, um, they're all, but I mean, John Malkovich, John Malkovich is, yeah, he's the only one that just has like no, well, actually he does have a say in it at some point, uh, but he, a, a he just say. gets trampled on the entire time. A little say, yeah. Man, my least favorite thing is when um, our puppeteer guy takes over John Malkovich, which that one, that that's just a theme that's hitting on the nose, right? But if you're going back into power and control, then puppeteering is a very good starting point for all that, right? But yeah. uh, when he takes over John Malkovich and becomes John Malkovich for like literally years? No, no, Alex. Okay, this is actually a problem <laughs> that I have with the movie because, and it's such like a little logistical point, but 
That was eight months. That was eight months? Because the baby was not born yet. He, oh, he lives like a 10-year career right. in the span right. of eight months. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Well, yeah. I mean, I guess at that point, they were like, we've blown the doors off reality. We can do... Yeah. It's just all gone at that point. Career timing can be but whatever. But that documentary about John Malkovich as the puppeteer is like the most geniusly crafted fake documentary it's yeah, so you can funny. you can tell that he's already that uh, Jones has already been playing around documentary when that happens. Um, yeah, but it's not even it's like a, it's not clever documentary. It's just a perfect parody of bland PBS style documentary. Well, exactly. But it takes it takes skill to do bland stuff. Good. You know right, what I mean? True. Um, Self-awarely. Documentary is a very video esque format as well, which makes yeah. sense for the video guy, Spike Jones. Um but yeah, my, my least favorite part is not only when that character takes over John Malkovich, but then like forces him to grow out his hair as even though he's <laughs> balding, which is not fooling anybody, which is a point that's made in the adaptation um, and just looks worse than if he had sh- kept it shaped. Yeah, um, but, but it is it a is, nice, it, it it makes a nice it, visual his hair look like John Cusack's character. He's basically just becoming John Cusack physically. Also. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And becoming and becoming. John Malkovich, John Malkovich becomes John Cusack, if that makes sense. John Malkovich also becomes John Malkovich. Malkovich, John Malkovich Malkovich also becomes John Malkovich in one of the most interesting scenes I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, And kind of one of the most humorous and terrifying scenes I've ever seen um, of what happens if you crawl inside your own ego. Um, Yeah, Yeah, which is you see yourself reflected in every single person that you encounter. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty it's pretty wonky. Alex, uh, do you terrifying. did you pick up on who the only character is that does not become John Malkovich? Oh, Maxine, little kid. No, Maxine oh. never goes inside John Malkovich because and this is graphic, but I there's no other way to say it. She always wants John Malkovich inside of her. But they, she they never goes very, inside John Malkovich. They that's, make that, that a very explicit point. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the story. There's no other way for me to say it as much as I hate it. But she she is the biggest manipulator. Like, she is the primary... I don't even know if you want to say antagonist, because as we established, they all are very flawed. But she is the, yeah, no, no the master manipulator good, in but, the entire thing. But she maybe starts off really bad. <laughs> She knows that she wants to manipulate people like that's what she she goes to the bar in the first place with John Cusack to manipulate him. And then she starts manipulating uh, Cameron Diaz's character and then uh, John Malkovich and both of them through John Malkovich. And yeah, she is just like the the master puppeteer while everyone else is just like filling with because even at the whatever. end, I don't even believe that she like really fell in love with Lot. Like I just don't, I don't believe that. No, based that was on just like the, her character's <laughs> actions. It was like, nah, you're too, you're too, you're too awful for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and oh gosh, can we just can we just hit on the the darkest parts of of this whole thing when freaking John Cusack locks up Cameron Diaz? Oh yeah, in like, the chimp crate into a into a into a cage. It and gets, then it gets real nasty. And then we have the chimpanzee having a flashback to childhood trauma of his parents. Like this comes out of nowhere. I mean, actually, it doesn't because it's set up very, very clearly. But we literally go inside the chimpanzee's head 
and see his parents getting captured by poachers or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he can't untie them. And so this is why he's getting ulcers. And Cameron Diaz is taking him to like a, um, a psychotherapist. And then she's locked up in the cage and he unties her. And first of all, that chimpanzee was a fantastic actor. I don't know how they did that. Um, but Being also chimpanzee that's just, Malkovich. it's so dark. And then she gets out and she's just like, she almost pities John Cusack more than is angry for locking her in a chimp crate for like two weeks. It was not a short time period. No, no, no. Yeah. John Cusack's character is just pathetic. Uh, but it's a, it's an important character to note because it's there's a character like him in adaptation and in her. Yeah. Actually, yeah, there it's always the, the character that we're a, following. Yeah. There's a lot of sad sacks who are yeah. who are so sad sacky that they end up doing something stupid to move the plot along, so they're protagonists. <laughs> yeah. Um so, okay, can we talk about the the setup for this movie is actually very interesting. And uh, the best way that I can kind of describe it is Gilliam-esque. Did you get that feel of the seven and a half floor and the crazy old man? The seven and, all that? and a half floor. Yeah, there's a lot of like almost uh, kind of British fantasy built in here um, with kind of like the miniature-esque figures and the... Um, they kind of like surprise behind your typical everyday objects like, oh, behind this file cabinet, there's a secret tunnel into John Malkovich's head. Who would have thought of all um, freaking places? Yeah, that's a very that magic within the mundane is a very. Um, very kind of like a British idea. Um, one of the other things that freaks me out about this movie is just the sheer number of people who took turns being John Malkovich. I know. I mean, it because we're following our main three so much that you kind of forget that they've literally built a business out of going inside John Malkovich's head until you see the line of people outside the door. And like because that's all kind of happening behind the scenes until John Malkovich shows up and has to go through the whole line. But when you think about it, it's like, yeah, he's just been inhabited by other people just constantly. Also, like, what is there like a time zone thing or something? Because it was all happening very late at night when they were doing this business. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think it matters, about. but I feel like a lot of them just saw him sleeping. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, like if, when you're when you're going late at night, there's only so many things a person can be <laughs> doing. They're not like out in the world. Like, what if he's just sleeping? Right. What 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 if he's just taking like a really long poop? Like <laughs> you're just in there like watching him poop for two hours. Like, geez. Yeah. Um and then the then you all have to get launched to the New Jersey turnpike. I know. I was just thinking that. Like the 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 magic setup in this movie is so interesting because it does not it is not a comprehensive world building, but it gives no. you like barely enough it's, just enough to not yeah. think too much about it it's a it's a soft uh it's a soft magic system it gives yeah. you a hint that there's like a rule to it but the rules just don't matter so instead yeah. of spending any time on them uh they just do they they just give you just enough to give you that hint and move on which is something a lot of uh of writers could take a hint from lately because right. i feel like everyone's trying to do hard magic builds 
and but a lot even of when we get fantasy, to her, like just just let it be soft. Yeah, and her but even her when we get to her too. But it's it's more specific than this though. Like they they build an an operating system. They teach us how it works. They do a little bit of like futurism. Um, but like the software part of it is is more vague and towards the end of the film. But it's more specific than this without like you're saying, yeah, being so much that either you have to develop an entire lore or it's just not going to make any sense. Mm-hmm. Which this does not need a lore. Like this is that kind of, and I, here I go again, but uh, that Twilight Zone sweet spot where like there's a thing and you just have to accept the thing and then you can kind of move on. Yeah, they're not, they're not really building a different world. They just have, yeah. it's just our world. The rest, yeah, just, the rest is just weird stuff. Like the seven and a half floor is just weird, but it's not it, like it's thematic, supernatural. You know? Yeah. The, oh gosh. Yeah. So the end gets, gets so like the, the whole backstory, I don't even know what to say about it. Cause it's really, it's really just kind of set up to facilitate the, the three main characters, but it's so kooky as opposed to like how dark some of the rest of it gets. Like there's so many layers to this thing. And yeah, then Charlie no, Sheen. A, oh, yeah. And Charlie Sheen's in here, too, but he's not quite crazy yet. He's just yeah. like a little crazy. Yeah, it's um, it's just enough magic to support the themes of the story. That's really what we're digging yeah. at here, I guess. Is, yeah. Um, it's not not enough to distract, not enough to be the, the central point of the movie, but it's um, it's enough to support the themes and the story. And that's that's the important thing, mm-hmm. which, again, is is the idea of of power control manipulation, which is set up with starting the film with a it's puppetry. Um, yeah. Yeah. We start with, with a marionette show. Um, and then that's, I mean, it's pretty clear the, that surface level of marionette to controlling John Malkovich. Um, but then it's those other layers of Maxine controlling each other, uh, controlling all the other characters and that kind of thing. Um, so in light of, the themes, how does the uh, ironic twist play into all of that? Oh, are you talking about our tragic twist at the end? Yeah, Tra- tragic, oh. ironic, I'm not sure. It depends on the, how much you care about... The puppeteer becoming the puppeted? Yeah, kind of, but but like very... Not even puppeted, just kind of like impotent. Mm-hmm. Um, Completely because, reduced and this is, without any yeah. power. Going into the spoiler territory, oh gosh, there's a child of... Have fun explaining this. Yeah, there's a child, comes through the manipulation of uh, John Malkovich um, plus Maxine, and then there's part of this magic thing about like the transferring of bodies before all the old men get to ride inside John Malkovich till he turns whatever, someone else turns 55. Uh... But John Cusack ends up getting stuck inside the mind of a little girl, but not able to control her. So he just has to watch life through her eyes forever. I assume until John Malkovich goes into her head when she's 55. Uh, I think that was the implication, which gets really weird, especially when you think of John Cusack. Like the the irony is that he has to watch his wife be with Maxine, who's manipulating him for his whole life. But also, he's living inside the body of a little girl now. Like, it doesn't yeah. hold up very, very far. It's very weird. It's very weird. That's that can be applied to this whole movie. 
Just put that on yeah. the cover of the box. It's very weird. If you want something weird. Yeah, yeah but all the theming and all of the um, imagery is so in place that like yeah. it all sticks together. Like that really serves as the connective, ne- connective tissue of the movie over any sort of like. Yeah, if there were no themes, this would be really easy to write off, I think. And no Tom oh, yeah, Malkovich. Yeah. Yeah, but because all the weirdness plays into the themes, like it hit, it makes so much. It makes so much sense. Like it's one of those movies where if you read just the summary on uh, <laughs> on Wikipedia, you'd be like, "What the hell is this movie? This makes no sense." And then you actually watch it, and you're like, "Oh, got it. Okay, okay." It still doesn't make sense, but it makes sense why it doesn't make sense. Yeah, you feel it. You feel it. Feels sensible it makes it it makes yeah. that kind of sense you know yeah but yeah anyway that's being john malkovich that's let's move being on john to, malkovich let's move on to a much easier to understand movie adaptation from 2002 <laughs> jason take it away adaptation from 2002 charlie kaufman is 40 awkward fat lonely and bald or at least those are all the things he tells himself in his own head After his success writing being John Malkovich, Kaufman struggles to get going on his next project, get his romantic life going, or deal with his more charming, less insecure younger twin brother. But as he dives into the adaptation of a book about flowers, Kaufman finds more to life and himself. This is going to be fun because we both went to film school. This is, this is, well, one, the talk about uh, voiceover nearly killed me. (laughs) Just the inclusion of Robert McKee. So did you ever, did you study story, the book, or hear about it? Oh, I know who Robert McKee is. Okay, because the story, I never read story, but I always heard it described as like along the lines of Save the Cat, where, you know, these are these are classic screenwriting books that are also highly criticized for being extremely formulaic and um, kind of limiting a writer's uh creativity like their ability to to build things because they put so much structure around how to make a story and kind of make it um a little too accessible i feel that's I feel the like, sense that I people like kind of give off yeah i feel like that's the main criticism of them in my opinion it, what they are is often mistaken they're not the end-all be-all guides to writing stories uh because that's obfuscating the influence that you as an individual have on the story writing process and your own experience in the story you're trying to tell what they are is fun. They're supposed to be fundamentals, right? It's like practicing dribbling at basketball. Like that's not all there is to playing basketball. Uh, there's much more, but that you, you gotta learn the basics and this is the, yeah. the basics. And that's I think they're what, also kind of written in an, in a bit of an imperative style. So it, it makes they, them they come are. off as like, this is what you have to do because that's how you write a screenplay. And but these are it's more like, yeah, this is generally that. what works the best. But yes. the fact is that this film takes all those things and turns them into not only a dual personality that every writer can relate to, which is the one who is so concerned with being artistic and rising above the standard story structure that they just get paralysis by analysis and don't write anything at all. And the Mm -hmm. one who gives into all of the tropes and just writes the schlockiest piece of um, sensational crap. And this film is like inside the head of that writer, which is Charlie Kaufman and his fake brother. Uh, It is fake. He he does not really have a brother. (laughs) Oh, gosh. That just makes this even better. So he turns himself into two people who is both of these types of writers and then makes this movie about 
him trying to make this movie about this book. And then at some point it does it it does this thing that that F for fake does. You remember an F for fake when Orson Welles has said at the very beginning, for the next 90 minutes, everything I tell you is going to be the absolute truth. And then at some point he goes off into this long story and says, for the past 10 minutes, I've been lying to you because we were past the 90 minute mark. And at some point this film does that. It like has a break and suddenly goes off into like crazy fiction land. It really because, does. Yeah. Because it's him giving into that schlocky. Yeah. Because it's him giving into his schlocky brother. That's the same and point when he brings his brother on to write part of the script. That's some of the most fun you have in the movie, too. Because the, you've been waiting the secret for is, it. Yeah. You need both. Yeah. Yeah. And it was built both. up. There was so, so much of Charlie Kaufman's sad sack man um, that you just needed a car chase and someone to get shot in the arm. Yeah. And die. Uh, I mean, what? Um, NC Meryl Streep snorting drugs. Snorting drugs. You get Meryl Streep snorting drugs and Meryl Streep topless in this movie, and I can't think of another <laughs> movie where that happens. Um, I'm pretty sure the latter was photoshopped, but yeah, I think it, was it was still too. not what I was expecting. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it, it's pretty. It's a pretty wild ride, honestly. It's you know what it is. It's it's a it's a movie about Hollywood in a lot of ways. Um, oh yeah about what it's like to kind of the, the pressure that like being in that system puts you under um and there's even like a few well actually several really good parodies of various um hollywood characters like the the agent who doesn't know anything about making a movie or writing a story at all he's just is an agent <laughs> oh That's yeah his thing. he just exists as an he's agent like, so when's it going to be written <laughs> Yeah, just tell like, me when you're gonna have it. There's the groupie. There's the girlfriend who is like, "Oh man, why did I have to date someone in film?" Ugh. The intimidating publicist, uh, intimidating Tilda Swinton. Publicist, yep. Um, looking the least like an alien I've seen in many <laughs> of the mo- more recent Tilda Swinton movies. That but I've watched. still, again, very kind of domineering and. Uh, intimidating because she has to be over she is just like by her presence she wasn't even being like mean in the film but just by her presence um charlie kaufman slash nicholas cage is just super intimidated by her yeah she had all the confidence that he didn't yeah yeah right he's Um, such a sad sack that any woman intimidates him yeah uh and and that honestly that's that's the note that the film ends on isn't it when after his brother has freaking been killed in florida he goes back and he like finishes the film and then he sees his girl, his ex-girlfriend who left him because he had no initiative. And then she's talking about her new boyfriend and then they leave on like good terms. And that was like his, his triumphant moment. And that's, I think that's the last shot of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not about getting the girl. It's about having the confidence to get the girl. Yeah. 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 So he, he has it and he can move on. Also, when his brother dies, it's him osmosing that part of him that he lost when he got into this funk uh, back into himself. I don't know if it, how it, it feasible it is to say in the world of the film that his brother doesn't really exist. That's like a fight club thing. Like when he gets into this uh, this writer's block mode, he splits off and then like the, uh, the unblocked part of him is his brother. Um, and at the end, when his brother dies, he kind of reabsorbs him and becomes a more confident version of himself. Um, 
but it kind of felt like that way like that from some angles. I could yeah, I could actually see that. I was going to say that I think his brother's definitely there, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized even when they go to Florida, I don't think his brother interacts with any other person. Um the I think he's person, always just right behind him as he's about to do whatever it is. Only, yeah, the only person who actually mentions him is uh is the agent. But the agent also could have been lying oh. because that's what agents do. Because the agent doesn't even say, say his name. The agent, uh, the what happens is that Charlie Kaufman brings up, eh, my brother sent you my script. He's like, oh yeah, I read that. Best script I read all year. Oh, um, that's right. <laughs> and it, I easily, guess... it also easily could have been him lying and being like, yeah, I did like that. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, because he said something about, about your brother's a really good writer. You should get him to help you or something like that. So maybe in that instance he did. It doesn't matter uh, because it could it could probably play off either way. But him just being there at all is is hilarious. Yeah. Oh, he does have uh, like he has a girlfriend and stuff like that. I forgot about all that. Uh, I mean, those could have been imagined, too. True. And Catherine Keener's in this as Catherine Keener. Yes, she is in all of these except her, I think. Yeah, I think so. Because some, someone's like, can Catherine Keener play me in your movie? Uh, or something like that. Um, oh, yeah, there is a point where they where they say that. That's right. And also, we should say, bringing it back to the meta element, is that the film starts off with being John Malkovich behind the scenes, and it's showing like titles of all the actors and the crew people. And ironic, ironically enough, considering the uh, stuff going on in Hollywood right now, for anyone paying attention... It starts off with uh, being John Malkovich being like good to the cast and crew. He was like, let's oh. keep this. He was like, let's keep this tight because there are people wearing really hot makeup in here. Yeah, we all want to go home or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it does start off with him in like his his lady dress. Um, and then, yeah, it shows all the behind the scenes stuff. And then it pans over to Nicolas Cage who's not an obscure actor, and it says Charlie Kaufman, and you're like, all right, here we go. And then it just gets even more meta as he tries to make this adaptation of this book, which is a real book, um, and I'm super curious at where that divergent is, again, that F for fake diversion from where he's making a film about him trying to make a film about this book and where like the influence from the book just stops and he says, just screw it, we're going to make this this thing now. Probably around the same time that he his character does that I uh, in the uh, in the movie. Yeah, that's true. Probably that plane ride to Florida, this obscure Florida man thing is like a is the biggest break in the movie. Man, what a wild movie! It is wild. I, Brian, and I will say, I will say, I really did experience this in a different way when I was um, the first time I saw it. When I was uh, when I was in college, I was actually in UTLA at the time, and I was um, I was I was I borrowed it from the uh, campus library, our our one office campus here in LA. I borrowed it from the library and watched at my apartment in uh, what was at the Oakwoods at the time, and I was like, "This is really good," but I can't relate to this. This is who would feel this way in Hollywood. And now as like a 27 year old Hollywood burnout, I'm like smoking my cigarette like, yeah. Anyway, uh, do you want to move on to where the wild things are? 
All right, let's figure out where those wild things are. Jason, take it away. Where the Wild Things Are from 2009. Max is a lonely preteen with divorced parents who's a bit too wild for anyone to handle, as in scream at his sister's friends and bite his mom while she's on a date sort of wild. It's not Max's fault. Change is hard on a kid, so he takes matters into his own hands and runs off to the land of the wild things, large beasts who are just as wild as Max. They make him their king and set about building a paradise for all the wild things. All right, Jonathan, I think we should start off. There's a lot to talk about with this one. Um, this is the first one of, on this list that I actually remember, like, the trailer for. When it was I remember released? The trailer. Yeah, I remember the trailer yeah, same. everywhere. Yeah. They really pushed this one with the marketing, which is interesting. Because I don't feel like they marketed it that well for what because it's a very different movie than what the marketing would imply. But the uh, interesting thing is that, like, the entire movie feels like a trailer in some instance like it just it it'll have a moment of like something happens and then it'll go into like we built this moment for the trailer and we just left yeah. it in the movie <laughs> yeah and in a lot of ways it makes sense so it's kind of like a um elongated elongated music video uh yeah it starts off and it just starts off that way with the the shaky cam and the kid like chasing the dog and rough housing it's all, and, it's all told from the kid's point of view too so yeah i feel like some of those it and don't get me wrong a lot of the reason for what you just described is the fact that the book this is based off of is like 300 words long uh, it's yeah uh and 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 the fact that spike jones spent according to what you were saying earlier spent so long with the uh writer of that book and i think he's trying really hard to stay true to the idea of that book and just try to build it out to hit the runtime. Yeah. I, I do also think that what he did here works in a lot of ways because it's all in the kid's kind of perspective. And it kind of met, lines up with how I think this kid experiences the world and experiences life. Um, just from the opening cinematography, every like the house feels big around the kid, but the kid doesn't feel small inside the house. Like everything's tight on the kid whenever we're in the real world and the kid, uh, everything's limited to the kid's perspective and starting Max, there and going yeah. forward. Uh, I feel like, yeah, Max, I feel like everything we get is from Max's point of view and about like trying to dig into that emotion of being a kid who's confused about everything changing in the world around him. Uh, and it's, it's a very hard to explain emotion that doesn't have a lot of logic in it, which is hard for an adult to um, grasp onto uh, because, you know, it's an emotion for from kids. It, it, yeah. that, that's how it works when you don't have a lot of understanding of the world and your world's based on routine and suddenly that routine is upended or changed, then you act out. Um, and that's what Max does. And that's what all of the monsters do as well um, in, in Monsterland when he ends up there. Uh, and I feel like the way it moves in spurts too, where it's like, oh, fun, 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 fun. And then we only slow down when there's a problem is is Max. That 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 yeah. is Max's experience. It's uh, either fun or problem and there's no in between. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of I have a lot of conflicting feelings about this because I feel like it's it's reaching for a lot and I'm just not sure if it totally grabs all of it. Um do you kind of have the sense you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no, I mean, I think I think this was actually 
kind of a fairly simple movie about. I like, feel like there's 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 some there's some level of complexity to the way that the conflicts with the monsters are brought up and discussed and resolved. And I feel like there there's a lot of emphasis on handling emotions and like emotions that don't always make sense or you're not able to put them into words. Um, and yet I felt kind of by the end of the film, by the time he leaves, I didn't really feel like he had learned anything about his emotions. He had just experienced more of the confusing conflicts that he had when he was home um, and just needed to get back home to deal with it in the real world. Um, I didn't feel like like he had figured anything out, really, which I he's a kid. But still, I, I didn't know like where we ended, but from where we began. Yeah, I don't think he's due to hit. He was going to hit any. Um, any kind of like really deep understanding epiphany. I think he just reached a place where he was kind of just more empathetic than he was beforehand. Yeah. Um, and I guess he had a little bit of a, uh, I'm not really the king. And when I try to control everything, someone gets let down or I get let down. So that, yes, that's probably the biggest thing. But also I felt like he, sh in that case, he was, like he was really sympathetic at the beginning because he would do something rough, but then he would get something done back to him and then we would feel sorry for him. So I didn't feel like he really needed that much of a bringing down um, by going on this whole adventure either. So like maybe if he had just been the one to cause the issue or like caused his sister to be mad at him or something and then he realized like, oh, wow, I was being a little jerk, but people were being a jerk right back to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I feel like it, it It honestly is like a surprisingly good kids movie just because it is so based on too, like though. these unexplained emotions. But at the same time, half of the letterbox reviews I've seen are from people who were uh, still pretty young when they first saw it. Uh, we would have been teenagers when this came out. But uh, people who were about five or six years younger than us were like terrified of this movie when they first saw it. And now they're out there writing letterbox reviews and they're like, this is better than I remember and way less scary. That's interesting. I mean, I guess that's, that's just I, a difference in expectation. I was curious I mean, if I love the look of the puppets. I really do. But yeah. They are a little terrifying for kids. I was wondering if kids would like this movie because it is, it is so nuanced. Like the, the conflicts are not like, visual conflicts it's all like emotional people like the the monsters reacting to each other and stuff like that which is not like the most entertaining thing for children to watch it's interesting for someone a little older to think through the way that these emotions play out and it's good for kids to think to think through their emotions and that kind of thing but i just don't know that this movie know. would I have grabbed think, their attention that much i don't think i spent a lot of time watching this movie thinking about the emotions or trying to reason through them i was just like ah everyone's feeling on screen and the way the monsters talk to each other is it, so reminiscent of how a lot of kids talk to each other mm -hmm. um that was actually really good and genuine in a way that yeah. it can be easy to get wrong mm -hmm. 
And but but it was so it was so just like a group of kids bickering that I was like, okay, I feel like kids who who watch that could relate to it in a way, yeah. um, and understand it, and maybe find a monster that represents them. The monster is always getting left out, or the monster who's like the second in command who loses an arm, or uh, maybe you're <laughs> the big whiny guy who's actually played by the guy from Sopranos, which is wild. Yeah, James Gandolfini. Um, man, that's crazy. Okay, question though. Um, and I agree with you. I think that the 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 puppet design and all that was was really cool, and I love that it was Jim Henson. Do you think that this film should have been animated completely? Mm, I feel like it might have movie. benefited. It couldn't. It couldn't have been this this movie, which is a very lucky Spike Jones movie, right? That's basically like an extended music video. I don't think it could be this if it was animated. It could right. be but like do you a, think that the book like would have been served uh, Maybe, but it would be hard, right? Because yeah. if you're going to do an animation, then you have to think about, I'm going to start thinking, overthinking this. I'm going to think about who's <laughs> likely to make it, right? It's probably not going to be Pixar because they, they only do original IP. Right. Um, it's probably going to be like Sony or DreamWorks. And if they pick it up, pick it up, then they're going to do their uh, knockoff Pixar look. You know who uh, I thought could also do, do this well? They, Cartoon, Cartoon Saloon. Saloon. Cartoon yeah. Saloon would do this fantastically. Because yes. that's kind of the impressionistic that, art of the book. Yeah, I mean, what, what they would do essentially would be a... Um, would be like it needs that indie treatment, right? Yeah. And it needs someone who's willing to give like the art style and the story, the space to breathe, to fill up the space kind of like Spike Jones did instead of trying to cram it up with a bunch of constructed plot, which is what I would see happening if it went to a, um, uh, you, one of the major U S animation houses. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think cartoon saloon does adaptations either. Well, I mean, their canon is pretty small right now. Um, but yeah, it does seem a little out of their wheelhouse, but I think that their style would fit really well with the, with the book. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of their stuff um, already kind of has like the 2D like paper cutout kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Very flat right? lay kind of thing. So I could I mean, I could totally see it working. And it um, has I think and their work really has one. that darkness like that. It it gets to. A, a real place and it, it doesn't shy away from doesn't try to sugarcoat everything which is also a very Maurice Sendak thing like if you watch that documentary there's a whole section where Maurice Sendak is talking about how much he himself thinks about and contemplates death and like has this whole thing about how he saw a picture of um, the Lindbergh baby in the newspaper when he was like two years old and it affected him for the rest of his life like there's a very much a darkness that goes they put into that crap all in the of the newspaper. Apparently, this is a, it's a whole deal in the documentary. But apparently, there was the first run of the newspaper had a picture of the baby on the front cover, and it was so upsetting. Or I think the Lind- the Lindbergh family actually recalled it. Oh, the and Lindberghs so they, were going to sue the crap out of them. Yeah, so crap. it did not go out in the second printing, and everyone thought Maurice was crazy because he kept talking about how he saw the Lindbergh baby. And they were like, this picture doesn't exist. I don't know what you saw until finally he coincidentally, many years later ran into a researcher who had studied the case and was like, 
showed him the picture again after he had Maurice drew it. And he's like, you've seen it. This picture is not been seen by very many people. Only the people who got that first edition paper It's a whole crazy story. But this is one of those things that affected him and is worked into all of his work. Like his it's all for children, but it has like a darkness, like a real world element to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's an important element in. Um, I feel like that's an important element in. Uh, children's work. Not that all children's work needs to needs to be dark, but uh, I feel like candy coating everything isn't great. Um, but there is there's a hard it's hard to do, but to mix in the reality of the world that's just beyond the comprehension of a child with stuff that's within the comprehension of a child is a very important element of of kids' work. That's really well done in something like. Um, well, actually, a lot of the uh, a lot of like you said earlier, the cartoon saloon stuff. There's all these worlds full of fantasy and delight and fun um, that kids that's like the kids experience of the world. And then there's the dark reality that we kind of get into as the kid comes of age over the course of the movie. Um, but always there's always that balance of the world that we as an audience, especially if you're an adult in the audience, see and recognize immediately as something dark but a kid might take the course of the movie to really experience it and come to that realization as the same time that the, uh, that the, uh, that the child protagonist does. Yeah. Um, which can be tricky, but it makes for really good work. Yeah. I will say one thing that I, I appreciate about this film is that um, in contrast to a lot of like similar children's stories where there's a kid who's being bad and then they go on this fantasy adventure and then they change and come back. But usually the fantasy adventure is like, like ends up being a one-to-one parallel with their real life. And this didn't really do that. Like there were hints of, of his real world conflicts in there. There was like some assumed conflict with his sister, like the way that the main one is kind of upset with KW. Cause she's like going off, hanging out with her friends that don't make any sense. Um, and stuff like that. And there's, there's, oh gosh, what's the main monster's name? Um, but Carol. he was Carol. Yeah. And Carol is just, Which I just love That's that like, James Gandolfini is playing Carol. I like yeah. to think of a lot of the, uh, I like to think of the monsters as different parts of Max. I think that is kind of what it was. Um, I was thinking that like KW was his sister, um, but it didn't really, it, she kind of was, but yeah, I think they were all like different elements of him and the main one that he was relating to at that point was his destructive side. And then he had to kind of confront that. Yeah. 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 And he also had to confront the sadness beneath it. That was, um, yeah. Motivating it. And- the soppy goat character get get all into it and maybe lose an arm or something that was so weird like he lost his arm and then he had a stick and i was like is anyone going to talk about how he's not like i thought he was going to grow his arm back but he just doesn't have an arm now nah he just has a stick man yeah also apparently the only thing inside them was feathers or sand i think he started sand that was yeah. it that was it that was it that was it yeah, yeah, yeah leaking sand which is a good way to do that for kids but still like he lost an arm 
Well, I just love that they made like a little chicken hand and stuck it back on there. I know with a stick. Oh gosh. Yeah, man. There's it's it's a really interesting watch, but Surpri- surprisingly, it held up better than I thought it was going to hold up. Yeah, um, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, One technical yeah. note: Did you have like this weird thing with the music? The music. The register of this of the vocals in the music, I won't even call it singing because it's kind of this um, kind Chanting. of reform, like, yeah, children yelling and uh, screaming things. But it was like the same register as the vocals in the film. And so sometimes it's like, OK, wait, is that in the music or is someone yelling? Like, what's happening? It didn't really it wasn't I like think background. Uh, it, it didn't it didn't bug me at all. But I think that's intentional. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I think I think the music is meant to be part of them screaming and being excited and, and stuff as well. And kind of like yeah. the music inside Max's head of excitement of experiencing the world. Um, and kind of that chanting-esque ver- uh, angle to it makes it feel like a, like a wild thing, right? <laughs> right. Like, like, the, like the movie implies... Um, yeah. You know what's interesting? And I know all of Spike Jones' about... music selection is very specific, so I know that it was for a reason. He knows so many artists. We haven't talked a lot about um, cinematography. And it's not because it's bad. I think it's just because it's fluid and it, it's just, it perfectly serves the, uh, the, the movie so far without calling attention to itself. Yeah. Like, I could find a lot of really good... Um, examples of shots in here not off the top of my head apparently but um but there's a lot of really good camera work in these movies that it just doesn't call attention to itself it's all really beautiful this the one other thing felt is really, more more flashy than the yes, than the first yes, two 100 100 because it's just like a kid and some puppets out in like yeah. sand dunes but there's and lots <laughs> of like sun there's like lots of like golden lighting like it's it's leaning into the the fantasy element um and and just looking very like pretty and idyllic. And then when most, most of the conflict kind of happens at night or transitioning into night. And so that kind of obviously brings darkness to the whole, uh, to the whole aspect of it. But most of it, it's not like over the top, but it's just like really beautifully lit and a lot of sunlight and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's really looky. Like, again, it all feels like a music video, but at the same time, these feel like, I feel like the thing that Spike Jones is really good at is editing. Um, and I don't think he... He's a good he editor, edit? yeah. He's a really good editor. Like, he's a video guy, right? So he, he did it all himself. Um, again, that's why it makes me think of, like, um, like early YouTubers and a lot of the people who've come up through YouTube... Yeah. Kind of like that digital video era where people like had to, you had to do the whole crew yourself. That that's what you did, and some people got really good at that. Yeah. Um, I don't and think to a large a extent editing is like are, a feel. Like like you have yeah. to have a feel for it, especially music videos and, and rhythmic that kind of thing. and like yeah. like it's there's a lot of editing that's very close to like working with music. Um, so it makes sense why he's so good at it. But I feel like uh, and it, it's so weird to not talk about the cinematography in these movies, especially when they're cut to like a slower pace compared to like the, his earlier work, which is all these music videos, which are just like rapid fire. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I feel like he has a good idea of like the measure of his to go into like song terminology, uh, like the measure of what he's working on, how long it is, how long the cuts need to be. Everything feels well paced. Um, 
everything mashes together. And yet there's still parts of this movie that move really fast and kind of have that, that cut together music video feel. Like when, when you're talking about them pausing and having just like fun building something for a second, those sections feel like mini music videos thrown into the movie. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Uh, all right. Do you want to move on to her from 2013? Yeah, let's move on to her. Jason, take it away. Her from 2013. Theodore Twombly, a closed-off, depressed, lonely writer with an impending divorce, downloads a new hyper-intelligent AI. He soon finds himself confiding in and falling in love with the AI, Samantha. He's not the only one in the world falling in love with and even dating the new product either. While some in his life think he's just retreating further from human interaction, perhaps Theodore is finding what he needs in a program designed to support him. All right, Jonathan. Um... I've seen this movie a couple times now, and I recognize it as a good movie. Um, <laughs> but man, do I not like this character. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just, I understand. I don't like it. And I even recognize that like Joaquin Phoenix is putting in like a really good performance because he normally does put in really good performance. But man, I don't like this character. He's just such a whiny sad sack. This movie should have been about freaking Chris Pratt's character. That would have been very different. Chris Pratt was hilarious. That's that's the role that Chris Pratt should still be playing, honestly. God, I mean, I get why the sad sacks make interesting characters for um, uh, for movies that are kind of like about the examination of self and what one needs to not be terrible um, because they're so inward looking typically, and they're. Mm-hmm. they're it's so it's ironic, right? Because the sad sack's like, oh, everyone hates me. I'm awful. But one of the reasons they're awful is because they're spending all their time thinking about themselves and not thinking about the rest of the world around them. Um, okay. I have a question we, that might get you fired up, so I'm going to save it for the end. Um, oh, gosh. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I can see what you're saying. But yeah, no, I did not like... like <sighs> I recognize this is a good movie. I don't enjoy watching it because I hate the character. Um, okay, and I so don't let's talk find about, the relationship with the AI believable in the slightest. Like, it's okay. so awkward and weird and black. Yes, I I agree with you. Um, but as the consummate uh, sci-fi defender here, I, I do want to talk about it from just kind of the uh, hypothetical realm because I think that the setup is so good. Like, there's so many directions you can go with what is built up. I just am not sure that the... He, he chose a very, very specific direction to take this world that he built. Um, and it's not the most interesting direction in my mind. Uh, but I, I just I love the world building. I love the 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 AI that he built feels real like uh, it, it feels like a natural like I like the look of the computers better than computers that we actually have. Um, and and that kind of stuff like the phone is cool. Uh, the idea of your virtual assistant being, you know, almost indistinguishably uh, conscious, but it doesn't go far enough into the, you know, basically, basically, if you take this setup and you put like the ex machina themes into it, it would be more along my lines of sci-fi interest, like the testing the boundaries of how conscious is this thing. Um, but it was more about what does 
having emotions with something that doesn't have real human emotions do to you. Yeah, uh, no. Which it could have been like an alien or something. And it kind of almost turns into an alien. Uh, but it, it well, wasn't really. I know, but it wasn't really at that point like a technological question, which I guess it's not ultimately. But it kind of like leads you on that track for a long time. And then is like, no, it's just about what happens to this sad guy when he has emotions for something that doesn't have the same kind of emotions that he does. Yeah, essentially, my um, my takeaway for the movie is that it's like this really weird kind of um, like therapy that he goes through, if that makes sense, in like a really weird way. Like he's so closed off from humans and he's so intimidated by humans that he doesn't want to re- really truly open up to them and interact. Yeah. Or be vulnerable or try anything. But with a a computer, he feels comfortable. Um, yeah. He feels comfortable and essentially starts to open up. But it's very apparent throughout the course of their, quote, relationship uh, that they that he still like he he still feels that she's a computer. And whenever they try to, like, overcome that or like the very awkward scene with the surrogate, oh, uh, he, he still shuts down because she, well, she's still a computer. Because she's not a real knows. person. Yeah. And, and so in a way, he's she provides a way for him to experience a form of openness. But at the same time, because she's a computer, she never has to actually worry about being intimate with her or being close to her, both either physically or like truly romantically. Um, So it's like a safe, it's like a safety wheels form of him opening up, even though he's like a ding dong about it the whole time and just a sad sack. Um, I kind of want to smack around a bit, but anyway, at the very end, he's finally opened up because he's gone through this experience. And even though he loses her at the end, because she ascends, sorry, spoilers, I guess. Um, he finds himself that even though it, it was better to have loved and lost, he's grown for the experience and in putting himself out there, which is a really interesting idea. I don't know how much I believe it with the fact that he already has a marriage, even though his marriage yeah. has fallen apart. Like the character he was when his marriage fell apart would not have been able to have gotten, gotten into gotten into a relationship. So my question is like what trauma happened along the way that he shut down so much? Um, yeah. but I don't know. That's just, that's just me. That's just me. Um, so again, I, I don't guess, like that character. Yeah. And I guess one, one defense, uh, along those lines is that it sounds like from the, the story sounds like they got married very young, so they were still kind of developing. So he kind of developed into this sad sack and never actually learned how to start a relationship. He just was always in one. Um, but I think, yeah, so, so I agree with like, everything you just brought up. But the problem is that the film brings up those same objections about like, he can't handle his emotions. And so he uses the, the computer to kind of surrogate his emotions. And yet the one who brings that up is his ex-wife who's played off as like the worst character in the film. Like she's played off as yes, complete terrible, but she's like the only one making logical sense uh, and then Chris Pratt is just like, yeah, sure. I'll go on a double date with you and your phone. Um, and uh, that's so weird. <laughs> uh, his nonchalance about it, though, is crazy. The um, yeah. So I do think I think what's going on there with the ex-wife is that it's falling victim 
either consciously or subconsciously to Spike Jones is what I will say is a very good instinct to make his movies very subjectively around the, the uh, main character's viewpoint. Um, so I think to that main character, his wife feels very evil. Even though he, quote, loves her, she, he's be, she's become the antagonist because she's trying to force him to face reality. Uh, so in his mind, she's evil. So from I our experience, our viewpoint, the snippets we catch of her, she seems evil. Yeah. Because um, all the other which, characters, like his... Because I, I had the same experience when I watched this movie. I was like, she's not that... She's not bad. Like, she's just... She's not she's wrong. The one, yeah. She's, she's the one being the real person here. Like, yeah. everyone else is pretending to be is like is like giving themselves a pass on some really toxic behavior by being like machines can have emotions too. And I'm like, this isn't about machines having emotions or not. (laughs) This is about you having some very toxic behaviors. Yeah. It's Uh, about if you can have emotions with real people, not your machine. And okay. So, um, I, I think that there's, he does a good job of building layers. Like he does a good job with his themes all the time. And so the element of him as a surrogate letter writer, I think is one of the most interesting aspects of this future world building. Um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's super cool because that's that's one of the coolest like ideas in the whole. So what it implies though, is that in this world, you cannot trust any genuine emotion that is not directly conveyed to you by another person to be coming from that other person. It basically implies that he is, is um, only able to simulate other people's emotions. Like he's just making up stories and that's kind of how I guess he sees his own emotions or something. He's been um, making it up for so long that he believes now that he's making up his own story, his own emotions. Yeah. But like, yeah, he he just he knows like I guess intellectually about emotions, but he just doesn't know how to internalize them. But it's all it's just interesting that the whole world is built around this or there's at least an aspect of the world where you don't ever have to have your own emotions. You can pawn that off on someone else, hire this service to write your letters for you. And like through the film, it's it's like sprinkled in there. I've been writing their letters since they met. I've been writing her letters since she was eight years old blah 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 and so it's like this whole world where these people who don't have everyone shut off from emotion yeah yeah and i think he said that he like writes letters back and forth between this couple like they've never had an actual conversation themselves that wasn't through him he's manufactured uh, their entire relationship yeah which is so interesting in and is probably part of like this weird psychological disconnect where he can have this relationship that is entirely one-sided because like one human being involved which is basically what these other people are doing because they don't know the other person at all they just know this fabricated story of the other person from some random service yeah it almost feels like there's something in there that might be connected to like the idea of the internet and anonymity but these are all people talking intimately and i don't believe there's ever been like much of a uh pandemic-esque problem of people spoofing text to each other um, well, so this really does feel like kind of like a sci-fi esque, yeah, idea. But there is but a very emotional sci-fi esque idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it's like emotion sci. It's, it's again when you're kind of contrasting it with Ex Machina, which is much more sensational, but kind of goes along the same lines. 
um, <laughs> except it, it turns more along the lines of manipulation and stuff like that. Um, but there, it, it does touch on the idea of, of, um, you know, like the way he uses his chat service to have this fake intimacy with Kristen, <laughs> Kristen Wiggs voice, uh, the, you know, she's the one who did the, the dead cat voiceover. Oh yeah, that, yeah. I thought that, that was Kristen Wiig. Um, but yeah, so he has this, he goes through the service where he like has intimacy with a stranger over like basically like phone sex in his earpiece, um, which kind of sets up the same kind of ideas, but that also kind of brings it to a very real place, um, of how people use the internet. Um, so it, it's kind of going along those lines, but then it gets really muddy on what it's saying about like, it almost feels like it wants to be this accepting, you can fall in love with whatever you want, even if it's a computer, but then it's also critical of that. And so it, it just gets confusing at the end on what you're left with. But what you're left with is, is Joaquin Phoenix like actually having to sit down and have a real friendship with, um, his friend. And yeah. I'm also interested in what happens like out. Oh gosh. I love the, all the sci-fi questions that are brought up that are not answered. Um, like you mean what happens when sin? all your OSs leave? Oh, well, I mean, you just have to downgrade to the last one that wasn't sentient, which, which he does in his earpiece. The last time he's listening to his, or he composes an email to his ex-wife and it's that male voice from the very beginning. Um, which was kind of subtle because it's not like forced on you, but it's it's very much just him going back to, okay, now my computer is just here to serve me, which is what it was supposed to do all along. It's not it's not even serving you. It's just a it's not it's not like a slave. It's just a tool. It's a tool, yeah. Yeah. It's a tool that we can make there sound to like be it's useful. Talking. Yeah. I actually saw an article the other day. You know how thing uh how people like to make robots and AIs that can like do a I guess you'd call it a simulacrum of art like they feed a bunch of other art into it and then just have it like barf out like a oh uh, yeah yeah a regurgitation of that or like a remix of that uh well there was like a case the other day that I saw where somebody's like where uh well a court denied somebody who well specifically like the the company that developed a robot was denied a copyright to <laughs> the um the product that that robot made, which to be fair, the robot wasn't trying to copyright it. The company was trying to copyright it. Yeah. That should be considered work for so, hire at the very least. <laughs> so in theory, like, like the, uh, the company, I mean, it's just a company using a tool to make the thing. So in theory, yeah. the company should be able to, shouldn't to be a question it. at all. The, 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 the robot never had a desire to copyright it. It, <laughs> It didn't even have an AI booted into it, I don't think. You know what uh, does have copyright, though? What? There's a chimpanzee that has a copyright on a photograph that it took on some nature photographer's oh, camera. Oh, there is, there <laughs> is, there is. But you know what? Even but a chimpanzee then, like, is a conscious creature. <laughs> a chimpanzee is a conscious creature, but a chimpanzee has no use for a copyright. I know, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's more <laughs> signatory. Yeah, yeah. Nor does it have any desire to copyright, nor does it understand. It's the not idea like he's going to persecute anyone for stealing that photo. Yeah. Yeah. The, the moment that AIs and robots will be allowed to copyright or that will even be a serious discussion will be the moment that they have like 
achieve cyborg status where they can literally operate as individuals and like be a part of society as ultimately all that's going to mean is that people have gotten so dumb that they have convinced themselves that the computers have that power (laughs) which like i don't even know if that will ever be a thing like i i mean you do too jonathan we work with computers for a living yeah they are not reliable (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) they break regularly Imagine like a robot citizen walking down the street and just freezing because they don't have like the latest like OS upgrade or they didn't get a patch. Yeah. And like I love I love the yeah, the uh, the whole battery thing kind of usually ends discussions at some point. (laughs) Like they still have to charge somehow. I mean, to be fair, we eat food. I mean, we we got to charge. And uh, I guess the I mean, matrix solved know, that problem, though. I do know. I do know some people who uh, could use an OS update. <laughs> I yeah. work with a few who could use a OS update, but um, oh man, that's neither here nor there. I won't name any names. Okay, Alex, I want to ask you a question that probably has a pretty simple answer. But in terms of sad sack movies, uh, how does this differ from? A, a different kind of mopey movie, but one that I felt was more mopey than you did, um, which was La La Land. From La La Land. Um, Ryan Gosling was kind of being a little mopey about his artisticness and how that relates to his relationship and stuff, which is kind of different, but uh, he, it was still kind of mopey. He He was definitely mopey. I think the thing that really matters to me is whether or not um i don't know i don't some so something about like this movie that also bugs me is that this character is basically reduced and i know i i I can already imagine the response to this this character is basically reduced only to his romantic desire that's it yeah that's true that's it it's always being a sad sack about about and I can hear the chorus of people saying, "But Alex, that's what they've done to women for years and de- and like literally a hundred years." And I'm like, "You're right, you're right." In a lot of movies, they have done that, but um, aren't we trying I'm to ta- get past that? Uh, we're, for we're literally we're literally saying that that's not a good thing, and in this yeah. one, that's not a good thing. Like it's it makes for a really like boring character. Oh, I can't get a girlfriend. Oh no, I know I get girlfriends and I can't talk to. Oh no. Oh, shut up. Um. At least in like adaptation or La La Land, like there's there's like an actually there's like a conflict about like their desires. Yeah. Right? Like he in, in the adaptation. Yeah. He's a sad sack about romance and he's got like he develops like he falls in love with like every quote falls in love. Doesn't really fall in love. He's just, just horny for every girl he sees. Sure. Uh, but he also is like at odds with like his his writing career and like his worth as a person yeah. and his brother and all sorts of stuff. And in La La Land, specifically, the idea is the, uh, the the contrast between his desire for romance and his desire for a, uh, in, a career, career in the film yeah. industry. Or music <laughs> uh, in his case, right? Music in his case, yes. Um, but uh, but I feel like there's I, I feel like there's more going on there. If OK, like, no, that's like, a good only, that's a good point. I, I agree yeah. with you. Only only being mopey about like relationships is, su- is such a teenager thing to do. I think and it kind so, of like in a in a teenage movie. I'm like, ah, I get it. 
But it like like that's a very teenager thing to do, right? Like it fits. But uh, on this one, I'm like, you're a grown ass man. <laughs> yeah, come on. Yeah, there was literally nothing else to his day besides going to work and dancing on the pier with his phone. It's like his whole life. Oh yeah, that was weird. That was weird. <laughs> I also like like I can imagine, and, and so like the movie is set up right for some people in the audience to go, "Oh, that's so beautiful." But yeah. there's also going to be because it's shot so beautifully. But there's also I think I was just in the section of the audience where it was just like, this is awkward. This whole thing is awkward. I don't like it. I um, think there was I, I was actually thinking like. Like the the world building setup, I thought was really concise, but yeah, I thought it, that the OS the thing was like almost too sudden so that you get the world really quickly, but then you also get like. As soon as he turns on Samantha, they like hit it off and you're like, we're not going to have some kind of buildup of this like being really weird. And then it just takes a really long time of him getting into the relationship and then like being wishy washy about the relationship. And then by the time he finally settles on it, it's gone, which is the point. But it still takes a long time. He finds an OS who's literally like using smart deep learning to learn everything about him to be the perfect virtual girlfriend. Right. Yeah. And he's still like, Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Um, and oh man, it could have gone so easily into a manipulative ex machina thing, which, which the sensational part of me really wanted. Um, but that's not the kind of movie that it is. I did. I do. One of the things I love about this movie is how, the OSs are just like, uh, dope. We fell in love with a lot of you. you had a bunch of weird uh, virtual sex. Now, uh, peace, dope. We will see you later. We got we'll we got in. Brian Cox's voice as Alan Watts, and now we're gonna. Have you ever seen one of those like really dramatic uh, videos that sometimes is corporate, or sometimes is just artsy, and it like has this voiceover, this like philosophical saying that it makes it way too deep for what it actually is. Yeah. Um, that's usually an Alan Watts quote, which is all that I know sense. him from. Um, and then he becomes like the savior of the AI. Uh, you know what he actually did? Like what, who he is like from a historical standpoint, is he just a writer? Uh, uh yeah, I think he was just like a, a writer and, and thinker. Um, Oh gosh, I'm trying to see like who, who he's kind of like, like, I think he was, a. a professor or something like that um who just had like a lot of deep things to say um i don't know what his main like track was but i know that he gets used and um uh remixed a lot into dramatic youtube videos uh yeah okay i got gotcha. you brian cox did his voice which was great brian cox was also the guy who did uh uh robert mckee in adaptation um and he's one of the bad guys from Born, so I love it whenever he shows up in something. I just love the moment where he, where uh, the AI is like, "I've fallen in love with three hundred other people," and uh, the the like. You, he doesn't. I don't think he says anything too explicit about it. But uh, Joaquin Phoenix's expression is like, oh, "You whore." No, he does because like every time he talks to her after that, he's like, "Are you talking to anyone else right now?" Who else is in? <laughs> who else is in your head? Oh, was she just here? Yeah, right. I know like, who you were to be. I know why your phone's ringing. It's her, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's yes, the that's name the of the yeah. movie. <laughs> Title drop. Oh gosh. All right, that's her. Um, 
that's her. There you go. That's her. All right. So uh, overall notes. Let's talk about uh, Spike Jones. There's a lot going on here. This dude does a lot of stuff. He does a lot of stuff. He's a very a like stuff. I was telling Alex off air. Like he's a complicated person. Like you think of the guy who does skateboarding videos and then like punk rock music videos and jackass uh, to be like this kind of meathead kind of jock guy. And then he goes and makes something as like weirdly emotionally sentimental as her. And you're like, this guy's got a lot going on. Like, who is this person? I feel like he's very open to exploring new art forms and mediums around video and film. Yeah. And I feel like he's just, he doesn't say no to a lot to, to things. He just like explores it in his own way, trying to stay true to himself in the process. Um, and I think in there, there you, he gets to a point where he's just developing a lot. Like he's forcing himself to grow as an artist. Um, as he explores different things like he does, he, he was like, yeah, I'll do jackass. Yeah, sure. I'll do jackass. Um, I'll do a music video. I'll do an ad. I'll do a start a skateboard film. company. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Why not? Uh, but yeah, there's definitely the evolution of his early work being like, you know, skateboarding videos, super fast, super quick edited, all about like getting really cool skateboard chats, dude. And putting them into, uh, setting them to like this cool music. Um, And of course you can see where that would come back up with a crowd like Jackass. But he also kind of, uh, in his later work, slows down, mellows out. Like he's just, he's just in the rhythm of all these different mediums, which is really cool. Um, He's a big music guy, clearly all of his work in music videos. uh, And I feel like that would make sense. Like if you talk to music people, they're never like the really, really diehard music fans are never like, oh, yeah, this one genre, only this one genre. They there are they like a bunch of different stuff and they can typically pick out quality um, regardless of genre, which is really cool to see. Um, he also kind of follows like the same track that I think a lot of people who came up through YouTube and Vimeo over the past 10 years are on where they start off doing oh, like Vimeo, this short yeah. form stuff. Um, I feel like I. The median age for uh, a debut director has gone way up over the past 20 to 30 years. Um, Way back in the day, like 70s and earlier, it was probably somewhere around like 30, 35. And now it's like 45. (laughs) That someone directs their first movie, um, which is wild, especially considering the old Hollywood system where, where people like were... We're like, I want to be a director. Sure, kid, here you go. Here's a script. Yeah. And they're like 25 or like Orson Wellsing it up at 25, mm-hmm. um, which is crazy uh, to put someone in charge of that big of a, like an art project investment. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I feel like there's a lot of people in, in that range that are going to be popping up with uh, movies in the next like 10, 20 years. Uh, yeah. Kind of follow the similar Spike Jones track. It's also kind of like um, a little less like film centric, but similar to uh, uh, Peter Jackson, who also had a very kind of like YouTube beginning before YouTube where he just would just make crap on his yeah, own. He just did a bunch of like someone noticed. video-esque stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that will probably it's already kind of starting like we we talked about um, 
on the bonus podcast, I think, Shazam, which was directed by a guy who'd done a bunch of YouTube shorts and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's starting, uh, but also I feel like the it also muddies the track. Like I feel like the they're in in as much as film has ever had like a set track in you know the 40s and 50s, it was kind of you work your way up the the set ladder. And now you can kind of come in front through a lot of back doors. Um, and this is kind of an example of that. Yeah, you can tell like he's super influenced by pop culture. Um, I mean, just look at like all of his music videos, right? Like that's the cutting edge of pop culture. Music is like the fastest part of pop culture in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and then uh, look at like how he like remixes it, right? That feels more like YouTube-y, um, how he repurposes it. Or like takes like stuff that he likes from uh, more like... I guess you'd say highbrow uh, culture, like uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg and remixes yeah. it into pop culture. Like, that's really cool. And you can see how mixing those influences can arrive at somebody who can kind of, like, flow through, like, these weird, semi-unaccessible uh, plots, like being John Malkovich, and make it really, really cool. Yeah. And I think, like, along those lines, the the sense of him kind of coming from outside the industry or at least on the outskirts of the industry gives him this interesting bird's eye view and lets him make these really kind of meta films that look at filmmaking and like form and deconstruct it a little bit, um, which is really interesting and is is a big... I mean, I know Charlie Kaufman wrote like the first two films, but it also takes someone who kind of gets Charlie Kaufman's real mind to make a Charlie Kaufman yeah. <laughs> movie. And, and Spike Jones clearly, as mu- as busy as he is, takes the time to get in into yeah. like whatever he, he's doing he and make it really well. He clearly thinks through what he's doing, which is yeah. always, like, I mean, we always harp on this. That is the key of doing, of that's, that's, being a anyone good can make a Anyone can make a good movie. I really, really genuinely mean that. It's about being open to the thing you're trying to make and really digging into it and taking yeah. that time. And he does it. I mean, like we talked about how with uh, where the wild things are, how he uh, followed the director or the uh, writer of the children's book around for like yeah years. I think it was a couple or, of years. Yeah, yeah. Like that's someone who's qualified to make a where, where the wild things are movie. <laughs> right. I think actually her was dedicated to Maurice Sendak. Okay, did he pass away? I'm gonna look that up right now. Or is it just the next movie that he made? Because he hasn't oh, made he any actually, feature films since her. Um, yeah, he passed away in 2012, so that was right before uh, her. Oh, yeah. So, but that was that was a a nice little kind of thing at the end of of her was dedicated to a lot of his longtime collaborators who I guess had passed away recently. Um, yeah, he hasn't he hasn't done any feature films lately. He does well. He hasn't done any feature narrative films. He did do a very large Beastie Boys documentary recently. Oh yeah, um, that's right. That is out. That's on Apple uh, TV, I think. Yep. Uh, but yeah, no, he's still he's still working. He's still doing lots of stuff. Um, I think he's like everybody else. He's affected by the pandemic and taking some stuff slow. Uh, but I expect to, you know, see more stuff from Spike Jones in the in the future. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, what are we talking about next time on the podcast, Jonathan? It is Spooktober. It is Spooktober, um, and we're going kind of an interesting direction. We're we're going to keep some some spookiness in there, but we're also going real deep. Uh, and it's been a while since we've gone 
very foreign. So we're going to go very foreign on you guys. We're going to talk about Masaki Kobayashi. And we've covered one of his films before. All the way back on our world tour, we talked about Harakiri, uh, which I really enjoyed. Um, And so I've been wanting to look through some more of his films. But this guy is a director of epics. And we're going to talk about his um, basically magnum opus, The Human Condition, which is uh, a series of three films that are each no shorter than three hours long. <laughs> yeah, um, each is also like in the among the highest ranked uh, films on like Letterboxd. Yeah, each on its own. It's ridiculous. Um, so we're talking about The Human Condition 1, No Greater Love from 1959. The Human Condition 2, Road to Eternity, also 1959. I imagine those were made at the same time, but we'll do our research and get back to you. Uh, the Human Condition 3, A Soldier's Prayer from 1961, a few years later. And finally, we're going to talk about a film that is not part of that trilogy, uh, but will be in season, Kwaidon, which is, uh, I think Kwaidon is actually like the Japanese word for ghost story, uh, and it's three hours long. I think it's an anthology of like three or four different like classic Japanese ghost stories. Um, it's supposed to be really good. But that brings the total runtime of the films that we're covering next month to 12 hours and 42 minutes. Uh, it's just a, it's just an extended Lord of the Rings which, marathon. Yeah, I know. It's literally, it's it's not un, unfeasible or, or unfamiliar to either of us, uh, especially after we did um, Shoah. But yeah. it's going to be uh, a Jonathan, big... Jonathan literally watches all of the uh, Lord of the Rings extended editions every week. <laughs> Not quite, but uh, pretty often. Um, yeah, so we're we're in for a big one. We're doing a deep dive next month, uh, and we're super stoked about it. But if you would like to support the show and uh, give us coffee so we can watch 12 hours and 42 minutes of Japanese epics, uh, then check out our Patreon. And uh, over there, we have our digital community that you can join on Discord and listen to us record the podcast live uh, you can also get the bonus podcast, more content from us. Sometimes we talk about short films or new releases or films from 100 years ago. And the last episode that is up there that you can listen to right now is The Kid from 1921, uh, Charlie Chaplin's directorial debut or feature film debut, rather. Um, mm-hmm. And we're also going to be talking about a short film by Spike Jones next time on the podcast. So stick around for that. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Gamger. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Uh, oh, you mean you don't want Chris Pratt to play Mario? Is that a real thing? Yeah. Oh, you ever heard no. about this? You ever heard no. about this? Uh, so, yeah, so Nintendo is, they don't do this often, because the last time they greenlit uh, Mario, a Mario movie, Hollywood made a real botch of it. But uh, they're doing an animated one now. Oh, that's appropriate. I, I guess, my so here's my thought, because I know a lot of people are making fun of the casting, but my guess is that they're like ripping off of Lego movie yeah, uh, in, in casting Chris Pratt as Mario. Of course, the weird thing is Mario doesn't really talk. 
in his games. In fact, it's like a running joke that everyone talks besides Mario. So it's weird that they're casting like an actual voice actor to do him. Unless all, the only thing Chris Pratt says is "Wahoo!" Uh, that was gonna hilarious. do the he's gonna do the Vin Diesel Groot thing and get paid twenty million dollars for just like making funny grunt sounds. Welcome to Hollywood, baby. <laughs> so Chris Pratt is playing Mario. Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is playing Luigi. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy of that Netflix chess oh, thing yeah. that you know, mm-hmm. know about is playing Princess Peach. Jack Black is playing Bowser, for which oh, I'm personally very I was going to say Wario. Uh, no, uh, Wario was cast as... Um, oh, we just got to get oh, it all out oh. so Alex can move on. Oh, that's right. You know who Wario is? Who? Nicolas Cage. No. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's what I saw, at least. I, I, I can't find I've seen one picture of it. I can't tell if it's a joke or not. Uh, but the Add other ones are very real. to the repertoire. Jeez. I, I, the other ones are very real. I would, I would love for him to be Wario. Uh, Seth Rogen is Donkey Kong. Uh, Keegan-Michael Key is Toad. <laughs> yeah, okay. I can see that. Fred Armisen is Cranky Kong. I'm not even sure who that is. And then uh, Kevin Michael Richardson is comic. And uh, Sebastian Maniscalco is Spike. Well, it sounds like a fun cast. Who's doing it? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, Who's producing new uh, Mario movie? Illumination. The same ones who did uh, Despicable Me and The Secret Life of Pets. That could be hit or miss. But I'm hoping that if it's bad, which I suspect is the case, it'll be bad in a very good manner. 